Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Hey, Sue, how you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm on a mission to lose some weight by July 7th. Oh, a mission. I'm, I'm going to a wedding and I feel like Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream. I'm trying to fit in. Don't do that. I'm, well, I'm not going to do what she did, but I'm trying to fit into a dress um, that I've had for a long time. Yeah. So, I've, got, I've got a suit like that. It's a stretch. It's a stretch goal. It's a stretch goal. <laughs> if I get there someday, I'll be happy. Yeah. Well, uh, we got a really cool guest today. He is one of the stars of the Emmy and Golden Globe winning series, A Handmaid's Tale. His films include Syriana, The Social Network, The Ides of March, and his latest film is Spiral, and it's in theaters right now. Max Minghella joins us. Max, thanks so much for doing this. Of course. Thank you for having me on, Steve. So uh, you're... Uh, late dad was the legendary director, Anthony Miguela, who I got to talk to a few times, uh, particularly. Oh, you did? Yeah, right. Right, right before he won the Oscar for uh, The English Patient, I, I got to interview him. Uh, what was it like to grow up with a dad who was really one of the most important and revered directors of his era? Well, look, man, the lucky thing is, is that I'm a fan of his work. Genuinely, do you know what I mean? Um, because the reality is, is that I spent a lot of my youth, you know, reading his writing and watching uh, various uh, cuts of his movies. And there's a lot of time around the same uh, material over and over and over again. You know, I must have watched, you know, 50 different versions of English Patients. So um, I'm grateful and, and relieved that I actually liked the, the movies. Um, <laughs> and you know, it, it, it obviously, I think, probably started my passion for film. I mean, my mother also worked in a very different capacity in movies. She she originally, um, when I was like five years old, was working for the BBFC, which is like the MPAA in England. They decide like what, what rating a movie gets, mm-hmm. is it R or PG-13? Um, and she would watch, you know, three or four movies a day. And I remember as a kid, she would come home and, and she would tell me the plot of whatever movie she'd just seen that day. And, and she was watching pretty big movies at that time, you know? So it would be like Forrest Gump or Die Hard or Tim Burton's Batman. It was quite exciting. And then I'd get to go and see the movie and, 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 um, and see where, like, you know, the separation was between what I imagined it to be and then what the reality of it was going to be. Cool. So, you know, I um I had read that you did your directorial debut uh, in 2018 um, from a script that you wrote. So you sounds like you you followed in your father's footsteps being a writer director. What what was the most important thing you gleaned from your dad? Oof. Um, I mean, these are not the sexiest answers, but the, the reality is, I spent most of the time uh, watching um, post production stuff. You know. So I spent a lot of time watching him edit movies with Walter Murch and um, going to all the, you know, the ADR sessions with the actors. And, and so the thing I'm really most comfortable with um, is editing. And so when I made my movie uh, a few years ago, it really kind of 
I sort of sort of started from the end and then worked worked my way backwards. I kind of had a clear sense of how I wanted the movie to end up, and um, and uh, it was very helpful, to be honest. I think I'm sort of realizing now as I get older and try to do other things that um, it was it was useful to have been around this stuff as a kid. What uh, what did your parents say when you told them you wanted to be an actor? I know. Um, I was a pretty independent kid, Steve. I was a, you know, <laughs> I was really not academic. I was very keen to um, have a reason to not do homework anymore. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if they thought I was doing it for necessarily the right reasons. And maybe I wasn't. But eventually, over time, I think they've they've gotten used to it. Um, in Syriana, I want to kind of jump into your career a little bit. In Syriana, you played George Clooney's son. You later uh, wound up uh, being in a project, Ides of March, which was directed by George Clooney. Check the blog, see if there's any chatter, would you? Chatter? What kind of chatter? I don't know. Just see what they're talking about. Steven, are you still single? I'm married to the campaign, Governor. Married to the campaign. Good answer. Okay, Wall Street Journal has a name holding steady. Pullman dropped the point. Really? Mm. When did they do that? Checking out. Governor, the Wall Street Journal numbers are in and Pullman's down a point. Uh, we're moving in the right direction. Ben, are you still single? Married to the campaign, Governor. Crack team. Did you sort of strike up a relationship on Syriana? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, he's somebody I, I admire, like, tremendously. Um... And I think maybe because of, of my interest in lots of different things, right? I'm interested in producing and writing and directing as well as acting. And, and, and George is, you know, sort of the, the poster boy of, of Renaissance man, uh, Renaissance man in this industry. You know, he's capable of so much. Now he runs a tequila company. He's a really inspiring person and a really good person. Um, and I'm very, very grateful to have gotten to work with him a couple of times because he's just somebody I really look up to. Um, it's funny. I, I didn't really watch ER when it was first on. And then over the pandemic, I became completely obsessed with ER <laughs> and, uh, watched, I think 10 seasons of it. Um, which I probably shouldn't be admitting to. Um, Hey, we all had to watch something. We all had to watch something, but, um, it was really cool to just kind of like actually think about sort of where it all began for him. And, and then also to sort of see all these other amazing performances. I actually, I've become friends of, with Noah Wiley since then, just because I thought his work on the show as well was just so astonishing. Um, so he's had, he's had a really amazing career. So is he as cool as uh, he seems? Cause he seems uh, uh Clooney. This is uh, as cool as he seems. Oh Yeah. I mean, absolutely, you can, you know, there's nothing I can say about him that hasn't been said before. I think he's a uniquely charismatic person. So you were in The Social Network, which is, you know, for my money, like one of the best movies made in the last 20 years. This is a good guy. We don't know that he's not a good guy. We know he stole our idea. We know he lied to our faces for a month and a half. No, he never lied to our faces. Okay, he never saw our faces. Fine, he lied to our email accounts. And he gave himself a 42-day head start because he knows what apparently you don't, which is that getting there first is everything. I'm a competitive racer, Div. I don't think you need to school me on the importance of getting there first. Thank you. All right. That was your father's lawyer. This is in-house counsel. He's going to look at all this, and if he thinks it's appropriate, he'll send a cease and desist letter. What's that going to do? What, do you want to hire an IP lawyer and sue him? No, I want to hire the Sopranos to beat the... 
out of him with a hammer. We don't even have to do that. That's right. We can do that ourselves. I'm 6'5", 220, and there's two of me. We talked to Arliss Howard, who was in uh, Mank uh, for David Fincher. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I'm wondering what, because there are lots of stories about David Fincher as a director. What was he like as a director for you? You know, it's funny. I've heard a lot of stories about Fincher being very prescriptive, you know, and dogmatic with his actors. I, I, you know, I, I only worked with him one time, but my my experience was that he he really gave us a tremendous amount of, of freedom. You know, he doesn't cut; he, he he resets the take. So when you you know you do one version of the scene, instead of stopping and then taking ten minutes to go and get a sandwich, you just do it again immediately. Um, and so, you know, I felt like there was this huge safety net. I just felt like no matter what I did, if I screwed up, if I spilled my drink on myself, it was going to be okay because we were going to do another one. And that was a really fun and playful environment. We were, you know, really young actors. So I think to kind of work with a material that good and a filmmaker that, um, you know, brilliant, and then feel like we were also allowed to kind of play around and find it was, it was a really special time. So after being in that movie and seeing Mark Zuckerberg and what he's done with Facebook and social media, how do you actually feel about social media these days? It is so interesting that it wasn't around so recently and yet now feels like the most kind of dominant part of our lives and culture. Yesterday, I mean, you know, I'll admit it. I had to, I turned my phone off yesterday for like five hours because, uh, I had to do some work and I kept finding myself picking up my phone and looking at it every 10 minutes for no reason at all. Um, and it's, you know, brought us so many amazing things and I've, you know, made friends through it and developed relationships through social media. And there's all sorts of benefits to it. At the same time, I think it's such a time suck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> such a time yeah, suck. Yeah. Like, like most things in life, it's all probably better in moderation. And I don't think we're great at self-moderation. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy how there are times where I'll think of something, um, you know, you know, before I go to sleep, which is really when my mind races and I and I get creative, you know, and yeah, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, God, yeah. do I do I get up and post this now? You know, this is such a, you know, in my mind, it's like, oh God, this is hysterical. This is a brilliant thought. I don't want someone to beat me to the punch, you know. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but it, it is. It's just the nature of our lives right now. Yeah, it really is. It's yeah, funny time to be alive. So you're one of the stars of Handmaid's Tale, and uh, this show is a phenomenon. Uh, it's now season four. Um, you know, why do you think it's resonated in the way that it has? Why has it become this big sensation? Um, this might be a minority opinion, but I think a lot of people have chalked up the show's success in the past to its political relevance. And I'm very cynical that that's the reason that the show succeeded. I don't think people watch things for civic vegetables. Do you know what I mean? I've, right, right. <laughs> it's not, I think that's kind of BS. I think I, I, the show to me, what was so compelling when I first read it and why I enjoy watching it is because it's great melodrama. It's kind of almost like a soap opera. Hannah's back home. She's safe. I'm sorry. I had to do what I had Stop. to do to keep you. 
She was scared. She wasn't scared of them. She was scared of me. She was... She was scared of my baby. was scared of me. She wasn't scared of she loves you. She loves you. I love you. It's a very, very highbrow version of something that's also like almost Shakespearean in its kind of uh, fundamental drama. And I think if it wasn't for that, nobody would watch it. I think it didn't have great cliffhangers and it wasn't, um, you didn't want to see what happened next. Um, it wouldn't matter if the show was relevant or not. So I've, I've always felt like, you know, Bruce Miller and, and the writers and the filmmakers and Lizzie Moss, who, by the way, is you know, completely intrinsic to um, everything on the show. They've always just been very, very good at storytelling. And I think that's the reason it's done well. Yeah, I, I actually read the book, you know, when it came out, and um, it was probably one of the most disturbing books I'd ever read in my life. <laughs> and um, so I was I was just jazzed, and I know it just is kind of a, you know, just like the tip of the iceberg, you know, because you guys take it, you know, so much further. You know, the book ended, um, you know, such a long time um, before a lot of stuff had happened. But I wanted to ask you, um, you know, your character is so complex, and there are times where... I don't know whether I trust you or not. You have this, um, you have a tenderness, you, uh, you have a patience with June, but then you're a part of this regime that is just the most vile group of people that persecutes women in the worst way. And it's like, who, who are you? And like, how, how does Nick sleep at night with that? I mean, is that, is that a struggle for, for, for this character? Um, Absolutely. But, you know, the, the way I always just look at it is he's a spy, right? So I kind of think of it, um, I'm not a, as you can tell from listening to me speak about stuff, I'm not a massively intellectual person. So my frame, my frames of reference are not great sometimes. But to me, it's like a, it's like a cop show or something, you know, like you see The Departed or like Infernal Affairs or something like that, where like, you know, somebody's sent in to go and work with the mafia boss and he has to not tell anyone that he's secretly, you know, an FBI agent or whatever it is. Um, sure, you're going to see some really awful, awful things and and um, feel complicit sometimes. And I think a lot of those people end up, you know, becoming addicts and, and having like real trauma. But ultimately, I don't question Nick's personal moral compass. I don't think that I've never seen him to be somebody who has... Um, any endorsement of the regime that he's pretending to be part of. Cause there are a lot of uh, people who are fans of the show who uh, view Nick as more of a bad guy. I actually went through some, some Reddit and I wanted to read you. <laughs> uh, uh, this is one post I've never seen. I've never been a Nick fan. So I'm glad to see these three episodes <laughs> talking about the three episodes in season four. So far, the three episodes didn't sway me towards anything, but outright hating him. So, wow. <laughs> so, so do you get those sorts of emotional reactions? Um, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not particularly up to date with like the fan reactions to, to the show. That's very funny to hear that. Um, 
that's probably more of a reaction to Max Minghella than Nick Blaine. You know, Nick Blaine is not, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think he's intended to be a particularly divisive character. I think they really sort of see him um, as being sort of a classic kind of almost like romantic person, sort of like a Mr. Darcy sort of type mm-hmm. character. He's sort of built in that mold. Um, I think if maybe the audience isn't reacting to to the character, you know, that was a pretty um, gnarly message that person wrote. They probably just don't don't like me in my performance, <laughs> which is fair. Which is fair enough. I don't think that's the intention of the writers, if that's what you're asking. Well, I also think too is that you're in such a precarious situation because you're high up now. You know, you're a commander, so you do have some 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 liberties, I guess, being in that role. And if you don't go with with the Gilead, you know, way of life. Um, you know, your life is in jeopardy, correct? You know, but but you've also taken chances. I mean, when you kiss June in that, you know, infamous shot, um, it, right in view of Gilead soldiers, um, I mean, could something have maybe happened to you, you know, with, with the Completely. knowledge? Completely. I think he, I think he's very pure hearted. I think he really um, is always looking out for June. I think that's really the, the only thing he has left. That's the way I see it. It's the only thing he has left to care about or look forward to. <laughs> um, it's the only love or joy in his life is this woman. So uh, I think he sees that as his path towards redemption, you know? Um, and I think he's sort of willing to give his life for it. Uh, I think it's something that he cares about above all else. And that's a very kind of noble thing. And um I like him. You know, I've never done a show before. I've never done something where you play a character for this long. I feel very grateful for the fact that he's a character I like playing and relate to and um, and ultimately think is a good person. So my understanding is that episode three here in season four, uh, did, did Elizabeth Moss direct it? She did, yeah. She directed three, um, eight, and nine. So there's that big sort of sweeping shot uh, where... Uh, June and Nick kiss. Tell me yeah. what goes into like a big shot like that, a big sort of cinematic shot. Um, well, I think, you know, look, Lizzie is an extraordinary actor. As you guys know, she completely blew me away as a filmmaker. She seems to be able to do kind of everything in that episode, specifically the one you're referencing. She had to do massive set pieces. I mean, the bridge scene was was pretty low stakes compared to some of the other stuff that she had to pull off, you know, lots of visual effects and trains and all sorts of stuff. And then also very intimate, quiet scenes. Um, and I think she got the best performances out of the actors that, you know, any of us have given before. And, and at the same time also kind of create these amazing like visual moments so she can do it all. And I'm excited for her to keep doing more and more stuff. And, and she was very prepared. You know, the truth is that when we came came to do scenes like the bridge scene, she'd already thought about it a million times and had it all kind of planned out and with Stuart, our, our cinematographer. And I think she really enjoyed doing that scene. <laughs> she'd really been looking forward to it. And I, and I think that specifically that 360 shot that you're talking about was something that um, she was very excited to uh, to put on the screen. And I think it turned out great. You know, again, it really kind of underlines that sort of melodramatic nature of the show. Yeah, it's a beautiful shot. It really is. It's a beautiful shot. I tell you, one thing that I love about the show so much is that the dialogue is so brilliant because in the midst of 
this dark subject matter, the writers can infuse uh, levity. And in the yeah. last episode, when she went to see you with your child, um, she says to you, how's it going down there in Gilead? And you said, hanging in there. And she said, poor choice of words. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. just so perfect. Yes. Well, Bruce, Bruce Miller, our showrunner, has a very um, naughty sense of humor. And so, so does Lizzie, to be honest. Um, they're all very witty and cheeky people. Um, so you're in season four. You mentioned redemption. And that's one of the things that jumps out to me about your performance is that he's got this level of uh, guilt or shame about the things that he's been involved in. Um, is that sort of kind of the through line for for you uh, as Nick? Redemption? Yeah, redemption. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. Um, like, whenever he first became involved in this, in this thing, he, he did it wide-eyed, naively, and I'm sure found himself complicit in, in actions that he's now incredibly embarrassed by. And I think he's clearly, you know, done, done his best to try and redeem himself. But I don't think he'll ever shake that. And I'm beating myself now. But I do think that when June came along, it was probably the only time in his life that there has been something positive um, and re rewarding to him on like a sort of spiritual level. And at this point, I see him totally like as a sort of somebody who's sing that's his singular purpose <laughs> is to do whatever he can to help her and i think when he like you know when this guy's on his deathbed whenever that is hopefully when he's an old man um i think he'll look back on his life as june being the definitive part of it that's yeah. that's how i've always seen it yeah. well it was a great cliffhang with the ring on the wedding ring on your finger <laughs> It's like, oh you know man, what? forgot, what's, what's episode about, 10 going to be like? I forgot about that when I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it like an audience member going like, oh, he's married? Oh, he's married. <laughs> so I watched the very first Saw movie. I used to be like crazy into um, to horror films. And I found that to be so friggin' terrifying. Uh, <laughs> that I never went back and saw another Saw movie until this one, because we were getting ready for this show. It, what's it like working on such creepy material? Oh, um, it was so much fun making that movie. I can't pretend that um, any of anything was disturbing about making it. It's, um, first of all, like, it's a family of people who make the Saw movies. You know, this is the ninth movie and they've been doing it for a long time. And it's a very small family. So I've never worked. It's one of the bigger movies I've, I've done. And at the same time, I've never made anything that felt more personal or like you're doing something with your friends in the backyard. It really has that kind of homegrown feel to it. Um, so I had an amazing time. It's uh, the exact kind of movie that I love to go and see. I mean, specifically, I would say the buddy cop kind of element to the, mm -hmm. to this movie is, is really personal to me. Um, my office is closed right now, but if I turned it around, there's a giant Beverly Hills cop poster, which I've had, you know, <laughs> I've had in my room since I was four years old. Um, so this was a dream come true on a, on a lot of levels. And then to get to work with Chris, you know, who's somebody I've just always admired so much and, 
we had such a good time together and um very different people but also very similar people and um it, it, it's such a joy that movie i really <laughs> i really think it's a blast and i'm so happy it's finally out so uh how do you take coffee in the morning alone okay Hey man, I get it. I don't want to be stuck with some random kid either. You don't want to be my partner. You don't know that. Your dad's the reason for all of this. He's why I want to do this in the first place. And I'm not him. Prepare to be underwhelmed. Banks and Shank. Some homeless guy got hit by the three train. You're up. I don't know. Something about a, a, a pig head with a doctored voice is one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. <laughs> well, the pig is very cute. You know, um, he's always smiling, the pig. He's got a very, he's got a very sweet face. But it's like Boy one of those actions. things where you turn around, it's like, oh, like boing, you know, giant pig head in your face. I mean, it's just, it was very frightening. Um, uh, you know, I wanted it's to funny, ask you, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Well, that was funny. Like when I read the script, I was like, oh, "I'm never going to be able to watch this movie." But then, you know, it's that thing that people always say that when you're around it, you see how you know it's all made, then it's totally fine. So I know Chris was a, an executive producer, and I know Chris for many years because I was a stand-up for you know many years, and I started around the you know a little bit. At, he started a little bit after me, and mm. um, his dialogue sounds so much. A lot of his dialogue sounded a lot like his act. Did he do rewrites? Did he write some of that material? Um, God, I don't want to speak for him. I feel, I feel like he, he did do some work on, you know, our, our, our sort of dialogue scenes in the car and stuff, and then his scenes with his dad, played by Sam Jackson. Uh, but he also was very respectful to the Saw team in terms of letting them sort of uh, specifically, the, you know, the, the traps, which is like the, um, the brand of, of, of the Saw movies that, you know, that was left to the experts, so to speak. Um, so it was all a balancing act for, you know, for both, you know, both of us were completely new to the franchise and, and movies like this. So we, we wanted to bring our experience to it and then also not kind of get in the way of what makes it work. Yeah, because he had this one line where he was ta- you were talking about your wife and, and he was saying, women only cheat in the daytime, which is something I can totally <laughs> hear in his act. <laughs> um, yeah, some, some great witticisms. In that movie. So you're working on an exciting project right now. You're in Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which is a period uh, film um, kind of during that time. My understanding is it's sort of under under wraps to some degree during that period when silent films moved to the talkies. And it's such a great period in old Hollywood and the days of the studio bosses. What, what kind of research have you done to get ready for that? Yeah. I mean, that's, you've said pretty much all I can say about the movie itself. Um, but it's been the most fun thing to research, you know, uh, I didn't know, I'm a big movie nerd. I didn't know anything about this particular mm. period of time. And there's not a lot 
a visual reference for it. You know, it's been interesting actually trying to kind of dig up stuff to watch and look at, realizing, well, people don't really cover this period that much. I mean, The Aviator is a recent example. Scorsese kind of tapped into this area a little bit. Um, but it's been really interesting to kind of go back and watch some of those movies like Wings. Have you ever seen Wings? Oh, sure. I've never seen, like, I've never seen that before. I don't think I'd really seen a, a true silent film like that. Um, and there's so much interesting stuff. I mean, one funny anecdote, which I, I didn't know, is that when they were making silent movies, they kind of finally gotten, they kind of finally worked it out. You know, they kind of perfected it a little bit and they were, they were starting to make some beautiful stuff. And then talkies came along, sound came along, and they couldn't move the camera anymore. And they had, to, <laughs> they had to go back to being completely static. So it all becomes very metaphorical, right? Like every time you take a step forward, we take two steps back. And the other thing that's really interesting about that period of time is that when talkies came along, they were considered so vulgar. It's almost like the TikTok of its time. Yeah, know? yeah. People are like, what is this? It's, you know, it's going to ruin culture. And um, like any new thing in life, I think at, at first people are, are very despondent towards it. And I think also people's voices um, sounded kind of strange, so, you know, like they were, mm -hmm. they could act silently and, and it was fine. But as soon as they heard their voices, it was like, oh God, this sounds terrible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people stopped working very quickly. So there's a character that you've been linked to in the project. Are you allowed to say who you're playing? No. Is any of the speculation right? I don't know what the speculation is. Oh, okay. I don't. <laughs> but I, I, I would say, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it, it's really, um, you know, Diego, Brad, and Margot's movie. And I'm just very, very lucky to be a small cog in the machine. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, listen, uh, the television series is Handmaid's Tale. Season four is airing now on Hulu. New episode every Wednesday. And the movie is The Very Creepy Spiral. It is in theaters everywhere. Hey, Max, thanks a lot for doing this. We appreciate it, man. Oh, uh, you guys are awesome. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, sir. There you have it. Max Minghella joining us. Uh, great, great guy. And Handmaid's Tale. Sue, you are like knee deep in Handmaid's Tale. I love that show so much. It's just, it's so disturbing. Like, you know, you talk about scary movies, you know, you put that next to something like Spiral. And to me, Handmaid's Tale is a lot more frightening right. than, than Spiral. Just, it's, it, it's kind of, it, it's like I, I'm, I feel like a little suffocated when I watch it because I can't believe what these women have lived through right like right. repeatedly i mean it's like non-stop and i wanted to say this to him but the aunt lydia character Anne dowd plays just brilliantly yeah um, it's one of the few times that i've actually wanted to reach into my television grab a character and strangle it and just get rid of it because she is such a horrific human yeah being. yeah she is she is oh, oh. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't relent. And, and, and the thing is too, is that, you know, there's these shades of, of, um, kind of, um, sweetness that come out with, with her character. And it's like, oh God, this is so short lived. Yeah. <laughs> right. Know? Right. You know, everything is an ends to a mean. You know? Okay. So, so tell me, uh, means to an end, by the way, uh, means to an end. tell me, uh, dyslexic <laughs> this morning. Yeah. So tell me about this wedding you've got coming up, uh, and the dress that you're trying to wear. We start off the air. We did a little bit of this, but tell me the, tell me the story. 
So it's a, a friend of my husband's who I actually know. His daughter's marrying a guy whose father is a supermarket like magnet. He's just big Italian guy. Yep. Um, something about him is a little suspect. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Could be related to something. Um, so it's there's going to be a ton of people there. Yep. The invitation was so insane. It was a giant box that came and you yep. open it up and there's like there's like faux pearls like around Get out of here, the invitation. Really? And Tom was so funny, he said, I thought someone had sent you a tiara. <laughs> <laughs> so there's gonna be a ton of people there. It's a fancy schmancy, it's a black tie, it's at the Oyster Bay Country Club. Oyster Bay is a very, very wealthy area in Long Island. And um it is uh it may be one of those weddings where you just don't take pictures. Right. So it's an Italian grocery magnet. Yes. Yeah. So is that code? That's code. Yeah. Oh, no, no. No, he really does own these. No. Oh, no, no. But like, for example, um, my when my cousin uh, Maureen, she's my second cousin, actually, uh, got married to Dickie DeFalco. Uh, back in Philly, um, okay. it was a huge wedding, like huge, right? And uh, afterwards, about two years later, uh, Dickie wasn't in the picture anymore. I mean, he literally wasn't in the picture. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope he's on good terms with <laughs> with the people in his life yeah. because it could be uh, one of those uh, – you know, it's like one of those like Roaring Twenties, you know, movies where everybody gets shot up and then, you know, the music stops and everybody's looking around. And then one guy says, come on, it's supposed to be a party. Where's the music? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing beats 30 talk, does it? Here's what we're going to do. See? All right. So uh, Billboard has released its list of the top selling mainstream rock songs of all time. Now, these are. Rock and roll. So Michael Jackson, Thriller, Not Eligible, that's R&B Pop, Marvin Gaye, Motown, that stuff doesn't count. So I've got a list of their top three. And I'll just tell you that this is based on both airplay and time on the charts. Okay. So here is number three. It is from U2. And here is number two. It is, are you a Stone Temple Pilots fan, Sue? I mean, I, I, I like them. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not familiar with all of their music, but I did like them. Well, get familiar with Interstate Love Song.
And number one, and I had forgotten about this song, but apparently it was 16 straight weeks, number one on the rock charts. It's Day of the New, Touch, Peel, and Stamp. I've got this time on my hands You are the one to abuse Yes, I've finally found a reason Now I need an excuse I've got this time on my hands You are the one to abuse Yes, I've finally found a reason Now I need an excuse I've got this time on my hands So it raises this question. Sue, you and I both worked at WNEW in New York, which we sort of uh, killed the music part of that uh, station. Um, But (laughs) what is the greatest rock and roll song of all time for you and why? God, it's this is such a difficult question. Um, I, I look at it as, as one of my favorite songs, and it's Wild Horses by the Oh, yeah. And it was just the lyrics, the melody. It was just, it was just to me, just such a perfect, perfect song. Wild And what does it mean to you? Like, why? what were you doing in life that made that so memorable? Um, I was, God, that was in the 60s, so, but I didn't really become very familiar with it until I was a little bit older. So it just brings me back to a time of, like, junior high school when, um, you know, I was, like, in love with this guy. It was ninth grade. Um, and that's what music for me conjures up. It, it conjures up a time in my life. So I had a, a very, very close uh, group of friends, and uh, you know, every every night, um, you know, especially weekends. But we were we always did stuff. You know, we went to concerts. I went to concerts at a very young age. I think I was like fourteen the first time I went into Manhattan to see a concert. So um, and we were wild. Um, it was just our, our lifestyle. I, I tried things for the first time during that period, you know, um, smoked pot when I was really, really young. I think I was, I was like actually in sixth grade going into really? seventh grade the first time I smoked pot. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, you know, cause we, we all had, we had all had siblings who were like two or three years older than us. Right. And I think because of that, um, we did things a little sooner than we normally would have if we were like the oldest in the family. Right, right. Um, and I just, you know, I was in summer camp um, from the time I was nine to 15. 
And that music um, was, you know, I, especially the Rolling Stones. I mean, that was, you know, that was a big part of, of the music that we listened to when we were in camp. And summer camp to me was probably five of the greatest years of my life. Yeah. Because, you know, I was away from home. Sure. And it was, it was kind of like college for kids. And um, it was a very, very liberal camp. It was like meatballs. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we were just able to do whatever we wanted to do. Um, you know, a lot of people were smoking pot up at camp. Wow. And, um, and it was just, uh, it was just a liberating time. And, um, you know, just making, this is the first time that I made friends who didn't live in my neighborhood. Right, you know? right, sure. Every year, a lot of these, a lot of these campers came back. Like, I had a boyfriend for two summers in a row and I never talked to him or saw him during the year. Yeah. But when summer came, uh, he was my boyfriend again. <laughs> you know, it was, it was kind of a weird dynamic. Right. Right. Um, but I just think, you know, it was kind of, you know, coming of age stuff. And I think that that's, that's to me, that's what the stones meant to me. It was, it was coming of age. So uh, for me, when I was in high school, it was John Mellencamp, Jack and Diane. Uh, so, my girlfriend and I at that time, um, Emily Weber, uh, we would sing that song uh, together all the time. And that just, to me, that was high school. Um, my college song was GNR, Sweet Child of Mine, which I love Guns N' Roses. I love Guns N' Roses as a band. Um, and my all-time favorite band is U2, and I could go any one of their, like, I think One is one of the greatest songs ever written, but if you don't want to call that, like, rock, rock and roll, I love With or Without You, I love Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, I love Streets Have No Name. That reminds me of when I first moved to L.A., felt a little bit lost. Literally, the streets had no name because uh, I did not know where I was at any given time when I first moved to Los Angeles. Those were the days of like the Thomas Guide when I moved to L.A., you know, 30 mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, so I, I never found what I, I did find what I was looking for, but the streets definitely had no name. So those are the three for me. And I some others I put on the list. Uh, Eagles Hotel California, <laughs> Beach Boys had a couple of big songs, Good Vibrations, uh, The Doors, Light My Fire, uh, Led Zeppelin. I love Immigrant Song from Led Zeppelin, which is now the uh, Marvel 
uh, theme mm-hmm. song, the Marvel Cinematic Universe song. Uh, Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, Tom Petty, American Girl, mm-hmm. which always makes me think of the movie Silence of the Lambs. Do you remember that? Yes, exactly. She was mm-hmm. driving around, listening to that, and then the next thing you know, she's in a parking lot helping this creepy guy put his uh, couch into his uh, truck, and that's the last you see Catherine Martin uh, until she's saved at the end by Jodie Foster. Uh, so those those are a handful of songs that I put in sort of that category. If I had to pick one, it would probably be you 2 still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yeah, I mean, I was a big Who fan, so yeah, sure. I like my much generation. Like my generation, um, you know, Bob O'Reilly. Um, oh God, you know, Meaty Big and Bouncy was a great record. Um, who are you? Right. I mean, right. who's next? Who's next? To me, is one of the greatest all-time rock albums. Um, but you know, going back to you know, even later, um, even earlier, um, um, American Pie. Oh, played, it's such a great song. That played on the jukebox at this um, little, like, grocery. It was kind of like a grocery mart that had a couple of um, had a couple of tables. And when I was yep. in junior high, you weren't allowed to go out for lunch. But we used to sneak out and go out to lunch. So it was my, you know, my band of bad friends. And we would um, play that song every day that we were eating lunch and we ate the same thing. It was, it was so funny to me. It's, it just conjures up such a, such a memory from, uh, you know, from ninth grade. You know, the weird thing is that I think that single was a two-sided single. I don't think it all fit on. It didn't, didn't. It was the longest song that I had ever heard right. up until, you know, that point. Cause I, know, I remember you know, that stairway to, heavy, um, stairway to heaven went on forever. I thought about that. And uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was also two mm-hmm. sides of a 45, mm-hmm. uh, which is, they're the only two that I can think of, but I own both those 45s and Bye Bye American Pie is, is an absolute classic. All right. Uh, Sue, you know, who makes this show possible. Our good friend, Jacob. That's right. Jeremy talk about our friend Jacob and Ronnie all the time, and you know he's a sponsor of the Lakers. Jacob partnered with the Lakers because they both know what it takes to have a successful team. In basketball, the GM and ownership construct the team. The coaching staff works with the players, and the players perform on the court. So you think of Jacob as the owner, the GM, the player coach. Jacob, the owner and GM, has built a large and powerful team that has got the knowledge and experience to help you win your case. Jacob, the coach, has got meetings with his team, analyzes the best path to success for your particular case. And then Jacob, the player, will do whatever it takes to help you win your case, even jumping on a call, meeting face-to-face with the insurance company, or going all the way to the courtroom. Jacob is a real person, a real attorney, a real friend. He's my attorney, and he should be your attorney, too. Call Jacob for a free consultation, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24. Jacob. 844-24-JACOB, or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Call Jacob. Jacob. (laughs) That was terrible. I Um, thought that was perfect. It was horrible. You know, and I I actually had a hard time hearing you come in, so I don't know if it was something funky with your microphone. Uh, Well, you know what? We'll have to try it again. Okay. And we'll get that chance. 
on the next Culture Pop podcast. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate you. Uh, please hit the subscribe button on, on iTunes or on Spotify, and uh, we appreciate that. Leave a rating and a review, always great. And we will see you next time on the Culture Pop podcast. <laughs>